Welcome to the Let's Doing Podcast. I'm Ari Mizell. And I'm Nick Sonnenberg. And this is episode 219. And welcome again. This episode of the Let's Doing Podcast is sponsored by FreshBooks. And our sponsor, FreshBooks, wants exactly the same thing as we do. Less stressing and more free time. To get you there, FreshBooks has created dead simple cloud accounting software for freelancers. It's packed full of really clever features to automate all those day-to-day admin tasks you'd rather not waste time dealing with. Invoicing for one, if you know FreshBooks, you'll definitely know them for their invoicing shops. Creating and sending invoices literally takes 30 seconds. There's no formatting, no formulas, just really professional looking invoices always. And just think about how many hours that kind of a feature will save you around tax time. They even have automated late payment reminders. You can avoid awkward conversations with clients who don't pay on time by letting FreshBooks send auto late payment reminders. In addition, there's online payments so your clients can pay you online, which can seriously improve how quickly you get paid. And you get great insights because FreshBooks can even show you whether or not a client has looked at the invoice you've emailed. To feel the full effect of how FreshBooks can change the way you deal with your paperwork, FreshBooks is offering less doing listeners a 30-day free trial. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com slash less doing and enter less doing in the how did you hear about us section. That's less doing one word. So thank you, FreshBooks. So I want to jump right into the links for the week. And the first one is called Code Gophers. And I showed you this the other day, but basically you send an email to start at codegophers.com and with any kind of programming task you want, and they'll do it in 48 hours and it will give you a quote very quickly. And it's pretty much jobs that they do between $200 and $500. So I mean, obviously, we have like a whole cadre of developers at our disposal when we need to have things done. But this is really interesting. So I as like a as like a very basic example, I said, I want to have the total number of hours worked from my toggle dashboard sent to me via Slack every day at noon. And they wrote back and they said, well, we would code a Python script and it would integrate with the toggle API and then post to your Slack bot and it would cost, I think they said $230. Which is cheap for that. Well, right. So that, well, and I didn't know that until you told me that. And that's great. And, you know, if you're doing a big dev project, this is not what you need. But if you want something really quick and easy like that, like we've had clients, you know, friends of ours, as you'll know who I'm talking about, who's asked us to like, you know, mesh two APIs together, for example. And this seems like it's the kind of service that could do it. What I like about this, though, in general, is that I, and democratize is not quite the right word, but like for people who have no idea about programming or coding, but they're doing these kinds of things, it's like those repetitive actions, right? It, I look at Toggle, you know, every day, but I, <laughs> this wouldn't make sense for me because I'm looking at Toggle sometimes like 20 times a day. If we're doing like a really good week of hours, I want to check it all the time. But for the people who are doing those kinds of things, it's like, oh, I checked this website and I put this information here. Those kind of repetitive web-based, computer-based actions, you can most likely have someone program something for you just to do that. We've been doing a lot of development lately, actually, off of Zapier's development platform. Like all of our newest code that we've been doing for using Toggle API has been by the new developer using Zapier. And then it's not public Zaps. Like with Zapier, you can like build your own Zaps that are just for you. It's been really cool. Can you give an example? Well, like what we're doing now. So for instance, we just changed our pricing model. Now when you sign up for the VAs, it's $129 a month and that's it. You don't have the choice of purchasing hours and we're giving away five free hours when people sign up just to test the service. Because really, like as you know, once people start using it, you know they love it and they stick with it. So it's quite easy to give away a few free hours like that. But with Zapier, you could create the project, but it was limited. You couldn't 
set an hourly rate. You couldn't set the number of hours that were purchased and you couldn't set the visibility of the project to the entire team. So those three things are something that you are able to do if you use the developer platform. Another thing that we're able to do too is like, as you know, Ariela, we're giving clients complete visibility for every second that's tracked for any task. And we give them a bookmark link and they can see with this link all the tasks and how many seconds each task took. So that also we can automate through the developer platform of Zapier. And you know, for, for people who think that that sounded like too technical, just honestly think of like anything that you do with a computer or with a web where you're doing it more than once. Uh, and those are the kinds of things that you can start to just have programmed and coded and interact with the services that you're using on a regular basis, whether it's Trello or Toggle or Harvest or Twitter even. You can, I mean, there's a Twitter API you can work with. Yeah, I mean, and uh, like that automation sounds silly. I mean, even, I mean, it's taken us eight months until we've gotten to this point like where that's something that's important to automate because it only literally takes like 30 seconds for us to do when a client signs up. But it's just one less step and those 30 seconds add up and the risk of failure, you know, now is zero because a computer is doing it. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah. So now the, the other thing that is sort of a little, well, so that was one announcement in terms of the uh, price changing, but the other thing that we just changed as well is that the less doing bootcamp, which has been around for a few years now, which is Facebook based is a private group coaching program, basically for individuals. And there's going to be some big changes coming with that program as well. So I just want to give people a heads up for that. And one of the ways that the best ways to find out about that is to sign up for the less doing newsletter over at lessdoing.com. But I'm really excited what we're going to do there because a lot of the things in, in full transparency, a lot of the things that Nick and I are working on now are really to drive people to be able to use the VA service more. And, and, and that's not a sales tactic. We've really developed something to serve a need for well, originally for ourselves, but now for so many people. And, and what we found is that we're not really virtual assistants. We're not even really project managers in some ways. It's what we're, what we're finding is the best descriptor for what we do is on-demand chief of staff, right? Mm -hmm. And that has really interesting implications personally and for business where we can really manage everything in your sphere of influence, if you will. Yeah, totally. And like this chief of staff term is something that we're hearing more and more. And it's really you know, a high level person that can just handle anything. Exactly. And knows where to go for everything. Another thing too, that we've changed is when you sign up for the VAs, we're offering basically unlimited free consulting for, you know, helping you to outsource better. Yes. As, as, a, as included in the 129 a month. The biggest hurdle that we're finding is people don't realize that they can outsource over 90% of the things that they're doing on a daily basis and even though we always tell people, you know, if you don't enjoy doing something and if it doesn't use your unique skill set, you should think about outsourcing it. People just, you know, they're so used to it. You always hear like, oh, well, I, I can only do it or it'll take me longer to explain it to someone than just to do it myself. And obviously, sure, if it's a one-off, that could be the case. But, you know, most things aren't one-off. So it's a bit of an investment. And then for forever, you have it, you know, completely taken care of. So we are offering unlimited phone calls with our senior chief of staff to you know, help you basically get your to-do list into our system so that it's your not to-do list basically and you're effectively having someone else do your to-dos for you. And it's 
it's really fun for us. Honestly, it's been, it's been great. So uh, if you're not a client, you definitely should sign up for one of our free info calls and we can show you all the things that you can offload that you, you never knew you were. And honestly, whether or not you work with us or not, people need to be aware of all the things that you can outsource that you don't need to be doing yourself. So we were supposed to interview the shark, Damon John, for this week. And unfortunately, because of a scheduling conflict, we weren't able to do that. So because of a recent experience that Nick had, we're going to replay an interview that I did a little while ago with Dr. Sarah Gottfried, who, among other things, she's a, an expert in women's hormones. She's also a member of the One Taste community, which if you don't know what it is, you will definitely enjoy this. <laughs> Wait, is she the one that was in the four-hour body book? No, no, she's not Nicole Daydone, but she is friends with Nicole. So Okay, um, so when, when I did One Taste, it, Nicole taught it. Yeah, well, then you were very lucky. <laughs> Well, depends on how you define lucky. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone, you will definitely enjoy this interview. Uh, your hormones play such an interesting part in everything we do. I did this, again, like a year and a half ago maybe, but it's absolutely still relevant and you'll love it. And then next week, we'll be back with a normal longer episode with the interview with Damon. So thank you, everybody. And thanks, Nick. Thanks, Ari. Now I'm speaking with Dr. Sarah Gottfried, who is a hormone expert and the author of The Hormone Cure. So thank you so much, Sarah, for, for speaking to me. Oh, my pleasure. So you're a hormone expert and hormones, I think, affect people in more ways than they ever realize. It goes way beyond things like testosterone and estrogen, right? <laughs> For sure. You know, I, I feel like hormones drive what we're interested in, and a lot of people don't realize just how pivotal they are. So it's definitely the, it's the elephant in the room that we want to be paying attention to. Right. So there's obviously there's external factors, and I think there's probably internal factors, right, that affect how we, or, you know, emotional and stress factors that affect how our emotion or how our, our hormones sort of regulate. One of the things that really fascinates me in general, especially when it comes to chronic illness and productivity and all sorts of things like that, is stress. So what generally, what role does stress play in your hormones? Well, I think you know the answer to this, Ari, and I, I think our listeners know the answer to this. Stress is such a crucial piece to pay attention to. And I think, you know, I, I often will have patients come to me who say, yeah, yeah, I know I need to reduce stress. Could we just... Could you just, you know, stop talking about that? And could we get to, you know, the big guns? I want some testosterone. And the truth is that stress is the small hinge that swings big doors when it comes to your hormonal balance. And if you are running around like a stress case, as I was 10 years ago when I was in my mid-30s, the truth is that your stress hormones, in particular cortisol, plus there's many others, pregnenolone, DHEA, testosterone, those are going to be running the show and they're going to hijack your hormonal balance. So this is such a crucial piece. It's why I'm so excited to be talking to you because I think whenever we create these bridges in our content, we really help people understand the importance of things like stress as a needle mover. Yeah, so absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you make that very clear because, you know, for me, Stress definitely played a role in my Crohn's, and, and I have some interesting ideas about that, too, that I want to talk to you about. But every time I felt stressed, I could feel it in my stomach immediately. You know, I got that sort of, not the butterflies, because I guess that would be a good thing, but I got an immediate sort of rumble. <laughs> Something was off, you know, and with the Crohn's, at least, and I had, I personally had an issue with low testosterone and a whole bunch of 
other issues related there. And then, of course, the medicines that you get put on, that a lot of people get put on, whether it's from medicines, whether it's from food or toxins, that has an effect too. So one of the most notable ones for me was Propecia, which turned me into an emotional wreck. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, really, and I don't mean to like be stereotypical, but I was just like a crying little baby. I'm really glad you raised this because whether you're male or female, for our listeners, you know, if you learn nothing else today, I want you to really get this particular point. Testosterone is so important. And it's not, you know, I think we have this mythology around testosterone that it's what makes you crazy for sex and like swinging from the chandeliers. And, and the truth is that testosterone is a hormone not just of sex drive. It's a hormone of vitality. It's a hormone of confidence and agency. It's a hormone that allows you to really put your power forth in the world, you know, in a way that's congruent with your values and who you are. When you're low in testosterone, whether you're a guy or a woman, you're not going to have that same sense of agency, that same sense of being empowered. And often people describe just what you just did, they feel like a wreck. They feel like, you know, I, I, who, what is this alien that has taken over my body? And, you know, I just like, can't get my act together. Absolutely. And so Propecia, you know, Propecia is given to both men and women. It basically takes every molecule of testosterone that you have in your body and gets rid of it. And a lot of people just suffer terribly on it. So, you know, it's 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 a really interesting drug. I'm glad you raised that. Well, and, and I was put on it because I had one of the drugs that I was taking, which is which is uh, originally was a leukemia drug. So I was basically seeing the sort of side effects of chemo, which one of which was my hair thinning. And so then I was put on the Propecia and it was just like, uh, you know, and that combined with systemic steroids just kind of makes for a whole pool of of a mess. And it's true. It's it, it, the, it's so interesting to think that, you know, these these neurotransmitters can make it so that or actually they're not are they neurotransmitters technically no right many of the hormones act as neurotransmitters as well as hormones hormones we think about as you know acting on endocrine glands on cells you know they're like text messages that get sent from usually an endocrine gland to other cells in the body they also act as neurotransmitters you know good examples of that are epinephrine norepinephrine oxytocin Progesterone, also a neurotransmitter, a neurosteroid. So you're you're right. Okay, good. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to be misspeaking. <laughs> so uh, you know, it's just it, all these different things are just wreaking havoc. And then, of course, if you're not eating right, you're not exercising, you're not happy. All these things, like, how can we possibly keep our hormones in balance? How do we do it? Well, as with anything in life, when you're turning the ship around, it's the small steps that add up incrementally over time to a major shift. And so hopefully we'll get super practical about some of those small steps that you can take. But it's, you know, I know it feels daunting, especially when your body has been shoved around by, you know, as in your case, taking exogenous steroids, steroids outside of your body or getting put on Propecia at a young age. So what what I've learned after 20 years of taking care of men and women is that the body does best when it's nudged, not shoved. And our tendency in Western medicine is to shove. Like I was taught to shove really well in my medical training. And the body, you know, what we want really is to unearth the innate intelligence of the body. Some of us are born, you know, really being able to do that throughout our lives. I can think of maybe two examples of people like that. (laughs) (laughs) And the rest of us, you know, part of our path, part of our journey is to is to really understand, okay, what is the next right step for me? So I would love to maybe talk about some of those 
yeah, steps. Please. You know, you've you've had such an interesting path as well with understanding this. And I, does that ring true for you in terms oh, yeah. of nudging? <laughs> Absolutely, hundred percent. Good, good. Well, you know, one piece when I when it comes to hormone balancing, I'm a MIT bioengineer, and so I love to kind of break this down into systems. I practice functional medicine and integrative medicine, and what I realized when I when I was able to sort out my own hormonal issues in my mid 30s, when I was a stress case and my cortisol was three times what it should have been, what I found was that there were a few pieces that were really evidence-based and you could go through them in a progressive systematic fashion. And the first step, I call this the Gottfried protocol. The first step is that you fill nutritional gaps and you make targeted lifestyle changes. So that's with how you eat, move, think, and supplement. And that's certainly where less doing comes in. So that's <laughs> step one. Step two is to take proven botanical therapies when there's evidence to support their use. So we're talking about adaptogens, for instance, when it comes to stress, but I don't look at those as being, you know, the solution for the rest of your life. They're really temporary measures. You got to meet the the energy of the herb that you're taking halfway. You can't just, you know, it's not like, uh, it's similar to taking an antidepressant. You, you don't want to just give your power over to an herb instead of a prescription. And then the third, bioidentical hormones, but at the lowest doses and for the shortest duration, and only if you need it, only if that work upstream didn't solve your issues. Yeah. So I'm curious about that, especially because one of the things that I've seen a lot, and I've seen this with clients and I've seen this with, with, uh, well, now that I'm getting a little older too, I've seen this with friends, the beeline to get some sort of exogenous testosterone seems to be like the thing now. And it's kind of amazing. And not only that, it, to me personally, it's like a really scary thing to even have in your household because if you get it on anything, if you if you touch your wife with it, or you or God forbid you touch your kids with it, like it's it's powerful stuff. And it's not it's not fixing the underlying cause, obviously. Yeah, thanks for raising that. I mean, addressing the root cause is really essential when it comes to not just getting your hormones into balance, but really creating the kind of robust health that I think you and I believe in so strongly. So yes, so root cause analysis is so crucial here. And yeah, you know, I, I had a patient last week who came to me and said very similar words, who, you know, said to me, hey, you know, I can't, this is a 42-year-old woman who came to me and said, I think I'm in perimenopause. I, I don't want to have sex with my husband. I work out at the gym the way I always have. I don't have the same muscle definition that I used to have. Spin class just doesn't do it for me anymore. And I heard that testosterone could really make a difference. How about if you write me a prescription? Don't talk about the yoga and the meditation. Let's just, you know, cut to the chase. And so, you know, the I have to break the news to her that it's not as simple as frosting yourself in testosterone, whether <laughs> male or female. And, you know, the, of course, many of the anti-aging folks out there would tell you otherwise. But what I've learned is that when you dial it back, when you start first with that step one and you cut out the sugar and you find a way to dance with stress differently, it's not so much how much stress you have. It's how you dance with it, as you know. Ari. Absolutely. Yep. And when you are burst training instead of going to spin class, like there's many different ways that you can get your testosterone back in a balance short of starting these prescriptions. And I'm glad you raised the point about how they can be pretty dangerous. You know, the there's certainly plenty of people who take 
bioidentical testosterone and don't have problems. I don't want to, you know, say that this is an either or situation because that never works. But I have a lot of patients, mostly women, who get exposed to testosterone when their husband is on it. You know, they use a towel, even though they're super vigilant or the sheets, you know, they get exposed through sharing sheets. And the problem really is with younger children who haven't gone through puberty, especially girls getting exposed to those doses of testosterone because girls especially are so sensitive to it. Boys too, before they go through puberty. Yeah. So, and that actually brings me up to a sort of a different point that I wanted, I, I had a note to make to you as, as well. Is there a time in our lives when there's sort of a good baseline, you know, because I, I, I've heard, I've heard many different things about this, right? It's like, oh, you, whatever you're at or 30, like that's what you should strive to. Or, cause I, I know for a fact that when I was in high school, those are not the hormone levels that I want to have now, <laughs> you know? Right. And, right. uh, so w- where, where is a good place to like aim for? Yeah, it's such a great question. I mean, it really depends on what you want to recreate or what you want to hold as your base case. And, you know, I at some point I want to talk to you about green buildings because I think green buildings have figured out this whole base case idea using the lead system. And this is what we need for the body. Yeah. Right. right. So you and I need to work on this. So for women, we know that one of the best ages as a, you know, kind of molecular poster child for hormones is 24, 24. Okay. So that's the age where ovulation generally is very regular. Before that, not so much. It's an age at which if you get pregnant, you have the least risk of having problems, you know, like high blood pressure happens in teenagers. And then again, in your late 30s and 40s. And it's it's a time where most people have not yet fallen down a hormonal flight of stairs. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Although, you know, there's there's some exceptions to that. When I was 24, I was in the Harvard MIT physician scientist training program and I was not necessarily a poster child of hormonal health. So it really depends on what's going on your external circumstances, but if we look at some of the hormonal changes that happen, In traditional Chinese medicine, they talk about how age 28 is when you start to see shifts in the ovaries. You start to see shifts in your life force and the way that it is by 28, it's sort of all going in the direction of your ovaries and reproduction. And then it starts to shift after that toward your heart, which can be a very good thing. That's another conversation. Mm -hmm. And then for guys, it's similar. So what happens is you tend to reach your peak testosterone somewhere around 18 to 30 And then testosterone tends to start to come down at an accelerated clip if you're a stress case and estrogen starts to go up. And so you want to be minding kind of the ratios. Sometimes it's not just, you know, what your hormone level is, but actually these ratios. So it's somewhere, you know, short answer is somewhere in your late 20s, early 30s is where you want to be watching. But for those of us who are less stress resilient and, you know, I'm raising my hand here because I my mess is my message. It can happen even earlier. So, you know, sometimes the answer for when to do a base case is when you think of it <laughs> like, sure. like as soon as possible. <laughs> yeah. So, and it's interesting for me because, and I, I completely uh, get what you're saying about how when you were 24, you were, uh, you know, not the, the picture of hormonal health. And, and for me, when I was dealing with all the Crohn's and everything else, my 
I'm just trying to think. I'm 31 now. When I the first time I got tested, when I was 28, I think my testosterone was like 247, somewhere around that. And I got it up, I believe, naturally through you know I never took anything androgynous, so it was all uh, diet and and supplementation and weightlifting, I think. Um, and I'm over 875 or something at this point. So. Thank you. Yes. And, and, and it's something that I definitely noticed. And I noticed that I was not only feeling better, but I was more resilient. I wasn't getting sick as much. Uh, but the question then is like, do I want to stay at that level for the rest of my life? Prob do I? Okay. Yes. So yeah, so this is a great question. And, you know, the there's so many arguments in the, especially in the age management field about what is ideal as you get older. And right. a lot of that ends up being this kind of quieter inner conversation and cultivating the awareness that you need to really understand what's ideal for you. I'll give you an example. So you just talked about testosterone and we know, you know, for most men, sometime between 40 and 70, testosterone is going to drop off. You're going to have a decline. It might be slow. It might be sudden. And we're still understanding, you know, some of the enzymatic prediction of that, you know, what sort of genetic drivers do you have? How does epigenetics influence the way that sure. that's manifested? But another another way to look at it is with your thyroid. So your thyroid's one of the biggest endocrine glands in your body after your fat tissue. And we know that if you're used to, say, a certain thyroid level, like a TSH of 2.0. And then say you're 36 years old and you go see an anti-aging medicine physician or you read my book and you see that, you know, for a completely normal euthyroid person, a TSH of 0.3 to 1.5 is ideal. And so you push yourself into that tighter range. It may not be the best thing for you because your body has been adjusted to this particular level and now you're actually pushing yourself a little harder. So this is one of those situations where it's helpful to know the base case, but if you don't know the base case, you have to have that you know kind of trial and success process of understanding what really suits you. Right. And you know I've got plenty of male patients where we will slowly try to, you know, get their testosterone into the sweet spot for them because that's individually determined, not, you know, based on a bell-shaped curve. And they'll find that they have roid rage, right? They, you know, if it gets too high, they may find that they're desiring sex too much and they're looking too much at, you know, the wrong person and um, feeling more aggression. I have a, I have a book by a friend, the doper next door, where he talked about his experience with testosterone, yeah, the, the, bike, the cycling guy, right? Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. And so, you know, there's, as with anything, you can get too much and you can get too little. So we want to find that Goldilocks position. And often that is, uh, based on biological individuality. Right. Well, I guess part of that, too, is is recognizing that there is a hormonal base to some of the issues that you might be having. Right. So um, so I do want to talk about sex a little bit here just for, for a moment um, and, and how that sort of plays into not only uh, the well, more, actually more as a driver. You know, how does sex actually affect those? And, and is there too much or, you know, is that, because there's all sorts of different theories if you're a Taoist or you're whatever you want to be. So um, how does how does sex sort of drive the hormones, which then, of course, can drive the sex. But Yeah, well, this is a bit of the what's the chicken and what's the egg, yeah, right? Because right. There's, uh, it's certainly true that sex can reset your hormonal balance. 
or I should say orgasm, really good orgasm can reset your hormone balance. And then on the other hand, your sex drive, kind of your interest in sex, I think is such a crucial portal or, you know, sort of set of signs about what's happening globally in your body, what's happening hormonally. So I guess I'll answer the first question first, because in some ways that's easier and, uh, and better known from a scientific perspective. So we know that orgasm in both the male and the female body raises testosterone. And there's some variation depending on your age, but for the most part, that's what happens when you have an orgasm. It's one of the most effective ways, especially for women, to get their hormones into balance. And there's many interesting things that happens with the female body at the point of orgasm. There have been, um, these are some interesting studies, Ari, I think you'll like this. You know, they've, they've done these studies looking at MRIs, functional MRIs, magnetic resonance imaging of the male and female brain at orgasm. And I think this will make sense to a lot of the guys and women who are listening to us. When a woman has an orgasm, it's the only time that the vigilance centers in the brain turn off. They go dark. Now, for guys, the vigilance centers don't actually turn off, but they don't seem to be as driven and as vulnerable to kind of this constant need to be vigilant in our modern stressed out lives. So this is really interesting for the female body. And I've, I've talked quite a bit with Nicole Daydone about orgasmic meditation as, you know, one of the, one of the items on an a la carte menu for ways to hit the pause button and, you know, step away from that constant vigilance that many of us are under. Another thing that happens not surprisingly is that at the point of orgasm, cortisol goes down. So cortisol is that main stress hormone. I sometimes joke that it's the bad boyfriend hormone. It's like the guy you dated in high school or college and you knew it was a bad idea and you went there anyway and it blew up in your face. (laughs) And maybe you got a a terrible diagnosis like Crohn's or maybe you, um, you know, felt depressed or, you know, developed a a muffin top or whatever. There's a long list of things that can happen along those lines. And then finally, there's some interesting data showing that orgasm makes the thyroid more efficient. It can help you with conversion of T4 to T3 so that you make more T3. So very interesting data about what I call in women, the hormonal Charlie's angels. So your cortisol, your estrogen, your thyroid get into balance. Anytime you help your cortisol, it also helps progesterone. And in the guys, I call it your hormonal three amigos. It's your cortisol, your, your testosterone, and your thyroid. And you want all of these, you know, working for you, not against you. Sex helps you with that. Okay. And well, and the, the point that you made about it being orgasm. So sex without orgasm, does that cause, does it, does that, I mean, which, you know, we know that happens. So is there, is that make it worse or is it, and doesn't do anything or what happens then? Well, or do you just get like a buildup then? I mean, I, you know, what happens? Yeah. So this is, this is an interesting question. You, you mentioned the Taoists earlier and I, I really love to create these bridges between the best of Western medicine and what we know from ancient wisdom traditions. And, you know, the Taoists were so learned about orgasm and sex and using this as a portal to higher consciousness. They talked about not, this is not exactly how they framed it. Okay, these are my words, but... (laughs) 
they framed it as not going for the climactic sneeze, right? Where, and I, I think this is what a lot of men and women do these days, where we just, you know, we go for the super fast sexual right. interaction and have a quick climax. Thank you very much. See you later. And you're really robbing yourself of tremendous hormone balancing as well as, you know, kind of higher things when you do that. And so the Taoists talk about, you know, going for kind of this plateau rise, plateau rise when it comes to orgasm. And so I would say that when you study this, it's a little harder to study that particular state compared to a climax and what that does biologically. But when you have that sort of extended sexual experience, it also allows you to create more oxytocin. And oxytocin is one of those, you know, divine, happy brain chemicals, neurotransmitters and hormones, so good for both men and women. It again, lowers cortisol levels. I mean, a lot of the benefit of orgasm is through oxytocin. Right, okay, so, and my wife has been pregnant three times, well, we've had twins and a baby before that in the last three years, so I learned a lot about oxytocin. <laughs> yes, um, you did. And so, and, and tell me, if it, I know this is not a myth, but tell me if this is accurate. What I've read is that you, uh, it takes longer for a woman to get oxytocin from contact with a man than it would for the man to get it from the woman. Or like if, if you're sharing intimate contact, there, there's a different rate at which the two, uh, the oxytocin raises, right? It's true. I, I actually, I'm, I'm going to have to take a look at this literature because the, the last time I looked at it was a few years ago. And then I I remember uh, John Gray had his new book come out about oxytocin, how women need to leverage oxytocin more and men need to leverage testosterone more. And he had a lot of data in there that I haven't been able to find in the literature. So there's one author, Pat Love, who is the author of Hot Monogamy. And she also wrote a great book called How to Improve Your Marriage Without Talking About It. And it has a like a blah, 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 blah all over the front cover. It's good. <laughs> And she, she actually talks about the opposite, that when it comes to men and women, women need to realize that often the language of connection with your man is touch. And that when you hug your man, for instance, you want to hug him about three times longer than might be your impulse. That's what I was referring to, yeah. Yeah, so, so the idea there is that it takes a little bit longer for a man to raise his his oxytocin levels, I think because women are so accustomed to, you know, kind of surfing the wave of oxytocin all day long, if you know how to do this. I mean, there's certainly some women, I can think of many of my patients in corporate America who are, you know, the oxytocin shop is closed. They're just not, <laughs> they're not, they're not leveraging that lovely hormone and they're running around, you know, feeling kind of miserable. But women, you know, we tend to befriend. Men tend to fight or flight. That's what they do under stress. Women are more tend and befriend, according to the data from UCLA and Shelley Taylor. So we're used to using oxytocin. Okay. So in the few minutes that we have left, I want to talk about food a little bit. And, and anybody watching this, I'm, I'm hoping that at this point, the people watching this are, are already on board with the idea that you probably shouldn't have processed foods. You should stay away from sugars, things like that. What are some of the foods that are good for sort of helping balance testosterone? And, and, and I'm not just talking about oysters. <laughs> well, I, I have to say oysters are one of my favorites. You know, I, I feel like we undereat crustaceans, and there's a reason why there's this time-honored history of oysters being aphrodisiacs. Okay. So, um, 
so if you look at the Gottfried protocol and, you know, you want to fill in, for instance, some nutritional gaps, what happens with a lot of guys and women is that their copper zinc ratios are not where you want them to be. Okay. So one of the great sources of zinc is in copper. I think both of them is from oysters. Another way to help you with that balance of copper and zinc is Napa cabbage. Oh. So if oysters are not your thing. That would be another great resource. I didn't know that. So, so, you know, this point you made about not eating processed foods, I think the the idea here is that when you cut out sugar, and we know that sugar is about eight times more addictive than crack cocaine, when you cut out sugar, that also really helps you with testosterone. So I think that's an important piece. Another one I like is sprouted grains. You know, when you increase the protein content, when you make sure that you're getting enough protein, especially those those who are listening to us who are adrenally dysregulated and you know who you are, you know, it's about 90% of my practice, but people who really are pushers and musters and push hard type A, you tend to need more protein. So having more protein will help crowd out the sugar and it also helps you with making more testosterone. Okay. And then what about on the, uh, the female side or, you know, estrogen, estradiol, those kind of things, what, um, avoiding soy, is that a fair one? Well, soy is interesting. You know, on the female side, a lot of these same things are effective in women, but they haven't necessarily been studied in women. And there are some gender differences. So, for instance, intermittent fasting has been shown in men to raise testosterone levels, but in women, not so much, especially if you're stressed out. So stressed women don't do well with intermittent fasting. When it comes to women, again, watching the, I like to watch the testosterone to estradiol ratio. And the main thing there is making sure you're getting the fiber that you need. I mean, that's true for the guys and the gals. Really? Yeah. So if you get fiber, you know, for women, you have to slowly build up to this, but 35 to 45 grams a day is the goal. The average American gets about 14. Uh-huh. And for guys, a little bit higher, more like 40 to 50 grams. You have to be careful with gut issues, especially if you have, you know, some, if you have trouble with, gut healing, and most of us do. The other thing with women, when it comes to soy, it's interesting. It's not that soy is so bad. It's the processed versions of soy that I think are bad. And also the GMO soy, I think, is, is not yet proven to be safe and a good idea. But very small amounts of whole soy, especially fermented, I think can be very healthy, as we know from the literature on the Japanese. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for all that information. It's really been amazing and, and, and eye-opening for me. And, and where can everyone go to find out more about you and, and The Hormone Cure? Thank you, Ari. You know, the best place to go is to thehormonecurebook.com. Thehormonecurebook.com. It's where my paperback is just getting released. I've got almost 50 pages of new content there. It just came out this month. And you get all kinds of special prizes and bonuses if you buy the book on Amazon and then submit your receipt. Great. Well, uh, again, so everyone check out The Hormone Cure. I I guarantee that you will like it and it will change your life. So uh, once again, Sarah, thank you. My pleasure. Bye, everybody.